Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Jamie O'Connell an editor and a writing mentor whose debut novel, Diving for Pearls, is out right now. It's a story of strange characters all linked to mystical Dubai, uh, a mirage of a place. We talk about his 500 words minimum rule, also how he made a city, a location, into one of the most important characters in his story, uh, and he tells us how he makes sure that he gets things done. I'm a control freak. I'm tr- trying to control my life, and bit by bit, I'm sort of losing such tightness over my life, and I find that's been very helpful to my creativity, because quite often, if I sat down in the morning and I'm not ready to write at that moment, and I push the words out, they, you know, it's a nightmare for me, and the words aren't necessarily always that good, whereas actually, if I sort of trust that need to clear the mind, mind myself, put myself first, I can come back at four in the afternoon and my 500 to 1,000 words write themselves. I barely, they're almost effortless because I've, there's been a self-care in there, you know? So I think that's probably why I've grown to really trust that process of trusting impulses as they arise. There is more on the way with Jamie O'Connell in this week's Writer's Routine. Welcome along to Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. Hope you're well. Uh, I've had a remarkably busy week, which is why I'm a little behind on on socials, in case you've noticed. I'm not expecting that you have. I'm also behind on on Patreon stuff and and spending quality time with my loved ones. Uh, If you're waiting for something on the Patreon, by the way, just just give me a sec or or ping me a message uh, as well online. Uh, I've also just started my very first Stephen King book. My dad is very happy about that. He's obsessed with him. Is, is there someone like that you know that only ever reads one thing? Nothing else compares. When my dad does venture into other authors, he'll spend the whole time scoffing that, that look, King, King did this better, by the way. Just so I let you know, King did this better. I've just started his, um, his 1963 time travel book, the one about JFK, if you've read it. I mean, it's almost 800 pages long. I don't know, am I alone in being hugely put off by length? I know that I'll have to, like, plough so much time into it. I mean, thankfully, at the moment, it's pulling me along quite nicely. Thank you very much. Now, this is the show, by the way, that takes you through the uh, the working day, the working life of some of the most successful authors around. This week, uh, it's Jamie O'Connell. 
He's written a few short stories. He runs an independent editing and mentoring service for writers. It's called Blackwater Writing. And his debut is out right now called Diving for Pearls. It's all about Dubai. Uh, a mystical, alluring, divisive, controversial place. It's the story of how one woman's death influences the fates of six people. A young Irishman, a Russian sex worker, a Pakistani taxi driver, an emirate man and an Ethiopian as well. We talk about why his ideas about a place were so strong that it made him write an entire novel. Also how he made a location into one of the most important characters in the book. We look at how he thinks about the precise structure of a novel, how talismans help him write as well. Also, why writing is like tuning in a radio for Jamie. His main mission every day is to just find the right frequency. Now, it's a good, detailed, getting into it one this week. I think you'll really enjoy it. So let's start with Jamie O'Connell, and we begin, as we always do, with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I'm sitting in the spare room on my desk there is I actually quite like a clear desk so I've been listening to your podcast for the last while and I know some writers are very different I was actually listening to Shari Lapina this morning and she was saying that she likes a clear desk and I'm quite like that I quite like very little sensory stimulation when I write so I moved into the room this room during the pandemic and actually has a stunning view I, I live in Kerry in Ireland which is mountains and hills but a lot of the time I close the curtains because I prefer to just be fully immersed in the writing itself. In terms of my desk, I have a plant which seems to just keep living without me watering it. I don't understand it. It's like a little bonsai tree. <laughs> is it plastic? Is it a real plant, Jamie? No, it is definitely real. Like it grows maybe about half an inch a year. Like it's the growth is tiny, but it, it seems to just survive without waters or being watered like three times a year. So which is, is good. And then I have a few little kind of lucky charms on my desk. Uh, one is just a little, uh, it's actually a silver fish. It's actually would have, it was something that hung in my grandfather's car who I was very close to, uh, which I always just feel brings me luck. He, he's, he's since deceased. And funny enough, I have an oil burner here because uh, my sister is very into alternative health and aromatherapy and all these kind of things. And she recommended rosemary, did the rosemary oil in an oil burner to kind of for mental clarity. And actually it works. I find it really, really helpful. If if coffee has failed, I put on the oil burner and I definitely find it's, it whatever it does, it just kind of clears that kind of fog, that brain fog. So I find that as a little tool if I'm having one of those days where I feel a bit almost sinusy or something like that, it really, really helps. Just uh, uh, very quickly on the, on the rosemary. And I mean who am I to make any judgment about these kind of things? And I'm kind of buying into a lot of them myself at the moment. Um, do you think the rosemary is helping or it's just your knowledge that it should be helping that's kind of doing the job? No, do you know, it has that slightly oil best oil quality about it, you know, that kind of clearing of the nose kind of quality. So I actually find it does help. Now, it's not coffee, like a good cup of coffee in the morning will <laughs> get my brain uh, kind of working. But I do find, and maybe it is something of the ritual as well to go, you sit down, you you follow the few steps. My morning definitely has a sort of ritualistic quality by the time I'm sitting down to write. And uh, I find minor tasks quite good for setting up my mind to write. Uh, I was actually reading yesterday about Ina Blyton and she talks about writing from a blank mind. And I find those kind of rituals in the morning before you sit down to write can often get you in that kind of clear space almost so you can tune into the creativity that that's 
there. Uh, I, creativity for me is almost like tuning in a radio. Like creativity is playing on a channel somewhere along the <laughs> along the spectrum, and you're actually trying to get your brain to tune into the channel of creativity and one of the techniques is very simple and almost mundane tasks can kind of quiet the mind or a walk I find running really helpful and sometimes there's a device of kind of just writing out I find if my brain is particularly noisy uh, it's a therapeutic people use it in therapy but it's to do that sort of unconscious write out for 15 20 minutes where you don't stop that's the only real rule is you just keep going and going and going and you push through and just even if you're writing out this is ridiculous i don't know what i'm writing for 20 minutes that will often clear that mental chatter that you know that that chatterbox we all have and then quite often then i'm ready to kind of sit down and, and write and create i've done um quite a few interviews now and i've never i've never kind of heard um, a, a metaphor for tapping into creativity is like fantastically put I think yeah it being a, a radio frequency that you just need to uh, trial and error ways to tune into is is quite a fantastic yeah way of describing it it's something that I've realized as the years have gone on you have certain parts of the creative process you control and you have certain parts you can't control and shouldn't try to control and if you do you'll generally not be as good as you can be so it's, it's this trust in the sort of unconscious and the, that part of your brain who will you know even charlapina saying i literally was listening to her talk this morning and she's saying i don't know the endings you know of my stories before i started and i can understand that because over a period of time with writing i've learned to trust things i don't know uh while at the same time following these kind of breadcrumbs of creativity which i don't always know quite where they're going it's this constant balance between control and spontaneity that I feel I'm trying to balance. One of the things that you, you say you, you, you can and do control is the state of your desk. Uh, at what point did you realise that like a clear desk meant a clear active mind? Simply from sitting at it, I don't feel comfortable. I feel unsettled if it's not clear. And that's been there since as long as I've been writing. I'm, I'm an orderly person. You know, I've always been, even in relationships, I'm always the very tidy person and uh, running around afterwards, picking up shoes and all the rest of it. So that's just my nature. And it seems to be something that's just unique to every writer as their own kind of process there. You know, I, I think of Francis Bacon, the painter, who just seemed to be, work best in absolute chaos. Whereas I could not work like that. I would, I just can't sort of sit in a room where things feel off, like to, to write in a room and to look at like, I've a number of pictures hanging on the walls. If they were hanging crookedly, that would throw me off <laughs> my game <laughs> just to see crooked pictures. So, <laughs> um, so I, I, I need, and maybe that's part of the writing process as well is trying to find patterns in life that feels quite chaotic, you know? So what I'm doing in real life is actually what I'm doing on, on the page, so to speak. Um, talking about pictures around you, is there much that's that's inspirational there? I bet you've got this stunning view ahead of you. Uh, have you got any like pictures or I don't know reviews, something that just kind of keeps you going? I have a series of pictures of my family, actually my sisters and siblings. I have a picture of me as a five year old up there because I actually feel the creativity that I have comes from a sort of an inner child and from a certain innocence. 
And I like to be reminded of that because the joy of creation I've had since a very young child. I used to love painting and then it moved to writing probably, I think it was around the age of 11 where I sort of fully went, I really love this and started writing consistently on my own. And there's always something about the inner child that remains in the work, the kind of the, and a, a, a belief in the goodness of people, a belief in the kindness of people. I'm very interested in people's humanity and I've, I don't ever want to feel cynical. And so I think it's very important to, I, I've said creativity can be like a radio tuning in, but sometimes I also feel creativity is like your inner child, the young you coming to you with an idea. And a lot of people in everyday life get creativity. I don't believe creativity is unique to this sort of special band of people, but we learn to tune it out as we grow up. We learn to tune out that creative impulse that idea that comes to you when you're in a supermarket or that idea that comes to you when you're mowing the lawn you know we just kind of dismiss it as sort of random and idle thoughts but actually that is that is it that is the radio <laughs> that is the station tune you know you've tuned into and uh it's like a child coming to you with an idea and instead of putting on the fridge and going isn't that a great idea instead you kind of go you dismiss it and slowly over time a lot of people's trials grow quiet uh, a few things come from that. I, I mean, you've slightly hinted at ways that you do this earlier on with exercising, with just cracking it all out, with, with just writing. Is there anything you're doing over a long term that helps you be more receptive to creative ideas when they come? If you say that, you know, adults kind of tra- tune themselves out of it, what do you do that means you're constantly open to creativity? I really try and listen very closely the instincts that arise in in my out of the unconscious I mean everything from as simple as I get up in the morning and there's a list of things to do on a rational level but if something comes in and goes you need to go for a walk right now I and I'm very lucky to be in the position to do that I go for the walk because I find putting my mind first and that impulse first the day always ends up working out anyway if you trust it that process. It's, it's happened to me before where I'm going, goodness, you know, it's, it's 11 in the morning, you know, there's a list of things to do and I haven't done any writing yet. And yet I'm not there like in my head and I need to actually, what's coming up is to close my laptop and just go out and go for a walk and take the dog for a walk or, or whatever it is. But putting that first, everything falls into place afterwards anyway. And I've learned it's a constant learning because I'm constantly trying to like I'm a control freak. I'm tr- trying to control my life, and bit by bit, I'm sort of losing such tightness over my life. And I find that's been very helpful to my creativity because quite often, if I sat down in the morning and I'm not ready to write at that moment, and I push the words out, they you know it's a nightmare for me, and the words aren't necessarily always that good. Whereas actually, if I sort of trust that need to clear the mind, mind myself, put myself first. I can come back at four in the afternoon and my 500, 1,000 words write themselves. I barely, they're almost effortless because I've, there's been a self-care in there, you know? So I think that's probably why I've grown to really trust that process of trusting impulses as they arise. You also mentioned cynicism. 
and it, it's incredibly hard and how you try and stay away from cynicism. It's incredibly hard at the moment with everything that's gone on over the past few years and we're, we're being battered by, uh, I guess, negativity and fear from all angles. Uh, what are you doing to, to try and stay positive and, and light? Are there any kind of t- techniques, some tricks that you're using? Maybe it's as simple as staying off social media. I'm yet to meet someone that I do think, you know, and this is talking in this, talking in a kind of a majority sense of the word, you know, in terms of the human population. Most people I meet are good intrinsically, but have surface level noise going on. You know, and most people, anyone I've met who I've sat down and talked to for any length of time and you get to know them are intrinsically good people. I I do believe that. And through their childhood, through life, through knocks they have and all these kind of things that happen to us all, they end up with this surface level noise of, of ego and they make decisions that aren't kind, probably more due to thoughtlessness. I very rarely meet a person who is, they set out to be malicious. As, as their primary reason for doing something. You know, people do things to hurt other people all the time, but usually it's kind of a tunnel vision. They're very focused on themselves. You know, they're very focused on their own story. And that isn't to say they don't exist. I do believe there's people out there like that, but I don't believe it's the majority by any means. And actually the older I've got, the less cynical I've got, if I'm honest. I find most people rise to your expectations for them i found most people to be wonderful and you know that isn't to say people make right choices all the time but i actually think most people when given you know the wider viewpoint will make a good choice let me just bring you back into your writing room one last time we've spoken about inspiration that you might have on the walls for creativity what about for practicality um uh, is there any planning and plotting on the walls, post-it notes, a whiteboard, a, a big old mind map? No, I do love a post-it note. I've, I've actually three different pads of post-it notes on my desk. I do enjoy, I, lo- I love a list. Uh, Pandora Sykes in her book last year talked about this need for tick boxery, she called it, this condition where you know you love ticking off a list and I do love a list. So my desk is quite clear, but it is in a spare room. So there is a double bed in the room with me and I have piles of papers very neatly in rows on the double bed which are the different projects or different things I'm working on not all writing but you know one might be some editorial work that I'm doing uh some might be I'm redeveloping my website at the moment so there's notes on that and they're they're all kind of stacked out the new novel there's a stack of books and notes there for the book that's coming after diving for pearls uh kind of almost a bit American psycho in the way they're laid out kind of perfectly. Uh, so, but they're not on the desk. They're, the desk is kind of, kind of a clear space where I just, myself, my cup of coffee and my oil burner and my tree that won't die. <laughs> uh, and I just work. And, and that's definitely how I work. I definitely, the view is amazing, but I find views, music, too much fuss are actually counterproductive for me with being creative. Uh, we've we become slightly obsessed with fonts on the show recently, Jamie. Uh, just just to take us through what you, you, if you have any staunch font opinions, this is the place to wear it. Well, I've worked in publishing, so I'm always, and I teach creative writing as well at times, and I'm always telling people, simple fonts, don't look crazy sending your work into a publisher with, you know, crazy fonts. It's, it's not appreciated. So I, I've, just got into the habit of using Garamond uh, as my preferred font. 
I just prefer it to Times New Roman because I think it's a little lighter looking. It's a bit more romantic a font or something. I, I just I do like the look of it as a font. So I'd say nearly everything I do, I, I write in Garamond. And then now and again with a title, I'll maybe tweak to kind of a sans serif font, just kind of mix it up a little bit. But it wouldn't be something... I it wouldn't be something I fixate on by any means. Though I did hear someone recently on a TikTok talking about changing font as a good way to see your work in a new way. So if you are editing and we, you know, you're on draft 10 or whatever it is, and you're getting this editor's blindness to actually just go into your document and change the whole thing to a different font and a different, you know, size and to reread it. And it'll actually allow you new eyes to, and you'll pick up mistakes that you missed before. Though my approach for getting rid of typos, I do actually use uh, Grammarly Pro, which is very helpful. But the one thing I do is that sometimes it's hard with a novel, but it's to go to the very end of the book and to read it backwards and not set word by word backwards, but to go to the final sentence, maybe if it's a short story, read that sentence slowly and out loud, and then go to the sentence before that, read that slowly and out loud, and work your way back through the story because you remove narrative from a story when you do that. You it gives you new eyes because if you edit forwards, if it, I'm talking at the kind of proofreading level, you start getting sucked back into the narrative and you, you know, page three or four and you're starting to miss things again. Whereas actually if you ed- proofread backwards, there's no story to get sucked into. It's, it's just sentence, 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 sentence. How did you happen upon that technique? I think it was my master's in creative writing. One of the, the professors on that course suggested it as an idea and it definitely works for me as a way to it's kind of, it's what I would use as the final, final, final edit for a story, maybe before I'd send it into a competition where you want to be sure that it's crystal clear. You know, an, an agent isn't going to worry about the odd little typo here and there. But when you're talking about competitions where there could be a thousand entries, that final few story, all the final 20 stories are going to be masterpieces. Essentially, they're going to be brilliant stories and they're going to be looking for reasons to cut down the list. And if you've left something glaringly obvious in there, you're giving them a very easy reason to not shortlist you or, or, you know, put you in the top one, two or three stories. So that technique, I think, is very useful if you are a short story writer submitting to competitions. My partner gets up at 6.30, so I wake up with them and I probably then, um, it takes me about half an hour to get out of bed. By the time I get up, I will make myself a coffee and I then spend a bit of time doing quite menial tasks because I find it very good for getting that mental headspace to write. So the load of washing, the feed the dog, water the plants in the garden, just pottering around. And I find that really calming on the mind. And then I probably sit down to write maybe by about 8.30. And the aim is every day is to write a minimum of 500 words. That is my rule. And if I go beyond that, that's fine. Some days I write maybe upwards of a thousand words. Some days the 500 feels like enough. It's been, you know, hard won. So, but I, I, I find it's very important to have that consistency of 500 a day. And and just because you've written a thousand today doesn't mean you get tomorrow off. <laughs> uh, so I'll write for a couple of hours then. And then the dog starts to get antsy and wants to walk. So I'll then go out and maybe do an hour's walk with the dog and do a few errands in my local town. And then I come back probably close to midday and then depending on how the writing has gone I may come back and write a little bit more or at that point I may be looking at doing other kind of work that I do kind of 
preparing for teaching or preparing for editorial work. Some days the writing isn't there for the morning and I start the day with the emails, you know, all the bits and pieces. And sometimes I find just to declutter my to-do list, uh, the mind starts to clear that way as well. So then suddenly, you know, I'm starting to panic because it's three in the day and I still haven't written the words I'd like to write. Uh, And then suddenly I sit down three and four, it's suddenly ready to go. And then I'll write for two or three hours then. Uh, And usually then the day will finish up with me making a list for the following day. And then I close the laptop and uh, that's it really. For the evening then, I generally have some reading to do. Uh, I find reading is something I do more at lunch because I was in a habit of reading before bed and then I'd fall asleep and then I'd forget the reading that I'd done just before I fell asleep. So I found when I was reading a book and it was taking me months <laughs> because I was essentially reading the same, same 10, 15 pages over and over again that I learned that my, my time to read is lunchtime and it's when my brain is clearest. So that is roughly my day. Um, if I may be so bold, yeah. 500 words a day is quite a conservative amount, um, having spoken to, to many authors. Uh, how did you kind of figure that out and and how perfect are those words for you i used to write 10 15 years ago so when i was maybe 23 24 i'd throw out 2000 words uh, a day not a bother and kind of not with not enough discipline or control as i said earlier there's always this balance between spontaneity and control and i think maybe 15 years ago it was all energy it was all undisciplined raw energy and of those 2000 I'd be lucky if 500 of them were any good. And, you know, I've, the one thing I do have in this, in, in this study, which I haven't mentioned is I have everything I've ever written since I was 11, <laughs> which is about a million words. I've, I've counted roughly what I have and there are a million unpublished words. I, what has happened over the years through formal training and through my, you know, own practice of writing is that I write less, but I write much more deliberately. And what I like about 500 words is it's impossible to say I can't find time to do that today. Whereas if I said I need to write 1500 today, I could be like, I just don't have time to write 1500. Whereas if I just say 500, I can generally find, definitely be sure that I'll have time to do it. And then I end up writing 1000 or 1200 or whatever ends up being. So I suppose for me, the 500 is a momentum thing so that I consistently write every day. But it also is that just my writing approach has changed where I now tend to not write the things that need to be fixed afterwards. I, I kind of take that. It's just a little bit more consciously written as I, as I go. And that has, it's the tortoise and the hare. You know, I, I find a little bit slower tends to win the race rather than just throwing out buckets of words because I have... I think seven manuscripts. Now this is from the ages of 11 of unpublished manuscripts sitting in various places digitally. And as I said, in the, in the plastic boxes in the corner of the room and they weren't published. I'd rather spend more time getting it right. I, the, the approach of just throwing stuff down doesn't work for me at all. How much do you know about those 500 words when you sit down at say 8.30 to start writing them? It would generally depend on the day when I'm writing the word, you know, the words are coming out and ideally in a kind of quite effortless way. But then at a certain point in the day, I start to feel the strain of 
creativity where it's not me going with the flow it becomes this kind of pushing through it and I this isn't this is pushing I'm I'm starting to write in territory that I don't know and when I leave writing for the day I kind of have a sense of what's coming tomorrow and I know my unconscious will figure it out by tomorrow I don't worry about it I I know my brain is writing even though I'm not writing for the rest of the day and the, the thing that I'm resisting or there's a certain complication around that I haven't quite got right, you know, the, I'm waiting for a piece of the puzzle to click. I now trust my brain will figure it out much better than if I push. Um, you mentioned that you've got like a million unpublished words and so many manuscripts. And, and I know you've published short stories before in, in, in collections. Now, this is your debut novel. It's, it's Diving for Pearls, published by Doubleday here in the UK. Uh, wh- how did this come about? How did... That the process of being published uh, kind of finally, without you saying finally happened, how did it happen for you, Jamie? It's been a long road. So when I was 11 years old, I saw an interview with an author on the television and she was talking about writing her first book. And I remember something clicked at the time and I was like, oh, I really want to write a book at some point, kind of in a very vague way. Now, when I was 11, that was 1995 and Windows 95 had just hit the market. My family had this new computer which had been bought and but actually other than me the sort of young preteen boy they weren't really that interested in it so at that time I was essentially had free reign with the with the computer and it was dial-up at the time so you can imagine times have changed and so I started learning how to touch type then from Mavis Beacon you know kind of a, a software back then you know ASDF so I learned how to touch type. And then out of that, I started writing my first book. Now, book's a strong word. <laughs> Manuscript, let's say. But over the course of about two years, I finished it. So I got, I think, about 64,000 words down. It was, you know, I was I, as an 11 to 13-year-old. I'm, I'm, That's some going. Uh, that is some going to, to carry on with it for two years. I tend to stick things out. It's, I find it very yeah. hard not to finish something. So I finished it, and it's awful of course and it's just really awful but I still have it and I mean it survived floppy disks and everything else and now it's stored away on some cloud and all the rest of it but one thing that came out of that was this just absolute love of doing it and and of creating uh and then out of that I then wrote another book around the ages of 15-ish I wrote I think I just read Lord of the Rings so it's like a fantasy epic uh, which is awful too, and very derivative of everything I'd ever read in my life. But I think that ends up being about 120,000 words over a few years. And I got it down. So once again, uh, but then on my third attempt at writing, I wrote a children's book called The Secret Ingredient, which I was kind of late teens. I'd started university at that point. And actually, I got an agent at that point. Uh, it was with Darley Anderson in the UK. And they sent it out on submission. And I got back about eight different replies from different publishers saying why they hadn't gone for it and they all contradicted each other like none of it kind of lined up but I remember trying to rewrite and and this is where I'd say the push didn't work it was like when you're trying to there's moments in my life I found where I'm trying to make something happen and it's not the right time something's missing there's a piece of the puzzle missing and no matter how many keys you try in that lock that door is just not gonna budge it's not the time for it so I re- tried to rewrite that story for about a year and then I just realized at that time it was sort of a, a, an increasing realization that though I was passionate about writing I didn't have any craft you know like when I think of a 
somebody, let's say, as a gift with woodwork or something like that, they still need to learn how to use a measuring tape and saw. You know, they, they're not going to be able to build a table and chairs until they've learned some form of the rules or the structures of writing. So, uh, so that's when the idea of doing a masters in creative writing kind of came on board. And so then in the two thousands, I completed a masters in creative writing, and that was incredibly useful for me. You know, I had all this energy and willingness to learn. I think I kind of was an ideal student for it. Was like full of energy, full of wanting to know more and at the same time having these incredible you know published professors giving you really sound advice on for me it was character was the big thing that I knew I was I felt I was not as strong as I could be I'd written this Roald Dalish kids book that was I knew it was funny you know it was was a funny book but funny isn't enough a book needs a heart you know a book needs characters that you want to see through on their journey and I'd read a few creative writing books around that time on uh, developing character. And they had things like character CVs, you know, kind of write out your character CV, what they look like, what they do. And I found it completely deadening. It did not help me understand character. But I remember in the first month of doing that creative writing masters that we'd worked just purely on voice and, and, and learning to write character from the way they speak, which I suppose is what actors do and, you know, screenwriters. And that clicked. And then from then on, I felt my writing took a different turn altogether so and then out of that I began to write general fiction and I tried a novel that I think was probably too closely related to a the ending of a relationship <laughs> and so it was the awful melodramatic disastrous novel of a you know that's just written about an event that's way too close to hand and then I had visited Dubai kind of in the 2010s and I had friends that had been the economic crash in Ireland around that time. So I knew a lot of people who'd gone there for work. And the second I went to Dubai, I was like, this place is like nothing else. So I just felt immediately compelled to write something. And, but the problem with Dubai is that it kind of, for, for a novelist, <laughs> is that everything kind of works. And I found it very hard to find a story when there's no overt conflict, you know, where there's no... It's almost like the, what's that Russian writer, you know, the start of Anna Karenina about, you know, happy families are all the same, unhappy families, you know, are, they're unhappiness, you know, they're different, unhappy in different ways. And I felt with Dubai, it was almost like happy families where it was like, where's the story here? Where is the, where's the overt conflict that I can work with? And it took about two years for that idea to develop into what actually happened, which was... Dubai clicked. I remember being actually beside a pool when I was in Dubai and it clicking in my head. Dubai is very like London, like Victorian London. Dubai and Victorian London have a lot in common with each other. You know, it's both were Dubai is a center of innovation now. Victorian London was, you know, the center of the, you know, the great Victorian age, the railways. But at the same time, you know, for both very conservative, both with ambiguous relationships with morality and both with this huge class divide. And the click that happened there, which was really important, was that I said, went, oh, well, who wrote about Victorian London, you know, very well? And it was Charles Dickens who, who came to mind and his story, Our Mutual Friend, where, which opens up with a body being found in the Thames and the story rises out of that. And that's actually where my novel started then, a, you know, a girl's body is found in Dubai Marina. Now, the stories end there. It was just, it, it just gave me the click I needed. I had characters, but I didn't have plot, but that 
click between Dubai and Victoria and London, I finally found Plot. So I had, with the previous book that I had written, as I said, about the, the awful relationship one, I had received some nice feedback from an agent who I'd sent it to who said, like, it isn't working, but you do have something in your writing that's interesting, you know, and, and out of that, I said to her, look, do you mind if I approach you in future with, you know, with, with future work that comes? And she was like, absolutely, yes, with, you know, I'd love to see it. And that was Marianne Gunn O'Connor, who's, who is now my agent. And so when I completed Diving for Pearls, I sent it to her and she got back to me with, she still didn't offer me representation at that point, but she came back with, I'd say about two A4s of detailed response, her detailed response to it and what she thought worked and what she thought didn't work. And I took that away and I redrafted again based on that and, and rewrote chapters. And I, you know, there was, it was quite significant rewrites. And then when I went back to her again, at that point, she was like, yeah, we're ready to go. And at that point I signed with her. But I'd say my relationship with her was back and forth for about five years before she finally signed me. And, but when she did, she really got on board. And, you know, I've, I've, she's, she's one of those agents that you dream of where she's almost there for you on the days when you get a load of rejections and she just will make sure that she presents it to you in such a way and going like, I'm so passionate about your project and, you know, I'm going to continue with it. So Dubai, the, the novel, the Diving for Pearls took time to find its home and she had it on submission for some time. And as I have a background in publishing as well, because throughout those years I've been working in various publishing houses, I had a sense of, I, and this is something maybe actually if there are people listening about thinking about getting published, know who your comps are, know who is out there right now successfully writing in your space and make sure if you're presenting work to an agent or a publisher to kind of go, you're not saying, oh, I'm an Enright or, you know, anything like that, but you could be saying, you know, I enjoy the work of Anne Enright and I think I write in a similar space to she does or whoever it is, or, you know, a crime writer, uh, because I think it's important that especially a publisher can fit you into, they can figure out where you fit in the market. Uh, because I think them taking on your work is a big financial commitment as much as anything else. And they need to know that you you fit into the space. The problem with the book that I wrote with Dubai, and I think it's one of the reasons why it maybe took a little bit longer to finally sell, was because there isn't any other book really about Dubai I could think of that I that is comparable to to what I've written uh you'll often see those trends in publishing so books you know are booked as well and suddenly similar books in a similar space start getting commissioned so I, I don't know that my book immediately fitted a box in that sense but finally somebody did get on board because you're a publisher as well it's not even that they kind of they can't just like a book they have to be passionately on board with it and that is hard to find. And I would say to anyone out there who is writing, who is facing rejection, let's say you hear about a book at a book fair and five publishers are bidding on it, you know, and it's a big publishing auction. You're kind of going, this is amazing for this person. It's, you know, it's a huge deal. But I can assure you that book was sent to more than five people. <laughs> that was probably sent to 15 people and five are bidding on it. So that means 10 people rejected it. So, you know, rejection is part of the game and... I think getting very clear on the genre you're writing in, figuring out who is in that space with you, figure out who their agents are, contact those agents, you know, directly and, and don't do any of these kind of form 
submissions. And then that's really your best chance of getting, you know, an agent to accept your work and to represent you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We're back with more from Jamie in just a sec. If you're enjoying this episode uh, or if our midweek writer's routine, our retro writer's routine, the random one, the bite-sized chunk from the past that we're bringing you, if that's giving you any inspiration to help you get cracking with your work that day. This week it was Mark Billingham. If you're picking up any things that are just helping the words come out, I'd love you to help the show out if you can. Get to patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Just a couple of dollars a month really helps us carry on. It helps us keep bringing you chats with the best authors around as often as we can. Two episodes a week for you now. There's a chance for you to get another bonus episode Uh, on Patreon, where authors will answer your questions. You can also get merch. There is also the chance for your book to sponsor this show. Uh, Some podcasts are sponsored by uh, Square. Everyone's sponsored by Squarespace or or roll-up mattress companies. That's a thing now. Uh, Razor blades, that's a lot. You can sponsor this show, your book, if you think it deserves uh, more of a plug than it's had so far because of lockdown and one thing or another. Let me do it for you to get involved, to help us out. Anything goes a long way. Just a dollar or so a month really helps us carry on at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back into it then with Jamie O'Connell this week chatting about his new novel, Diving for Pearls. It's about one woman's death and how it influences the fate of six people in Dubai. We talk about how the book came to him, how he pushed it on and what the process of getting the words down was like. Also, how he made a location into a place and tried to reflect both sides of this mystical mirage of Dubai. And we uh, we get back into it looking at his jumping in point for the story. I would always start with character before even starting with plot. And I find if you work on voice and you get your character, you really understand the roots of their personality and I think a question to always ask with character is what is the one thing that would like destroy them (laughs) what is the one thing that would mentally 
really mess, you know, that would undo them. If you can figure out that, you nearly have a plot. So, you know, and then you set up a situation where that thing happens to the characters. So that is where I work. I, I start with character, I start with voice, I start getting them very clear in my head. And then bit by bit, you know, the more serious aspects of their personality come out. And definitely with this book, you know, all the characters have Achilles heels and they're all tested in, in the book. I don't heavily plot. I generally know crisis point. It's like the North Star that I'm working towards. And I might know two, three chapters ahead of roughly what's going to happen. But beyond that, I'm I'm just having to, as I said, trust this spontaneous element of writing mixed with a certain amount of control. So I still don't fully know how the plot of this book fully came together. There was an element of trusting the creative journey, but definitely some of that then had to go into the rewrites where I was going, have I really got as much out of every character in this? I mean, the seven primary characters in this book. And I really want to be sure I'd tapped into their inner worries and concerns and really put them through the ringer. I mean, for me, a great book is you fall in love with the character and then they're put through their trials and tribulations and you really want them to come out the other side, you know, and and that's really important to me. And I think I wouldn't say I, I plot in the way, you know, I've seen people online post things where they have like these storyboards of, and it's very structured. I think if I knew everything that happened in a book before I started, I'd never write it. I just would lose interest. So in terms of the plot then, if you don't know a lot about what's happening, before you started writing Diving for Pearls, before you did type that very first sentence, what did you know about what it would become? I knew it was going to be a portrait of a city. That was really, really my primary intention. I'd also read Let the Great World Spin by Colin McCann a couple of years before that, where he'd written about 1970s New York at a very particular moment when Philip Petit walked between the Twin Towers on the tightrope. And he really captured the spirit of the city. You know, New York in the 70s just seems like such an interesting time. And he was able to get this fully rounded portrait because we move between characters and different social stratas from, you know, people living in Harlem right the way through to people living on the Upper East Side. And there was definitely something in his creation of a city at a moment, which influenced me quite strongly. So the novel is based over one week in late November 2010. And specifically so, because that was the week when an actual film star came to Dubai and filmed part of their movie. And I used that inspiration to kind of set the book on that specific week. And at the same time, the book is also about an Irish family who are, you know, members of the family are considering moving there. And the reason why they're moving is because Ireland is in the depth of the recession, the financial recession at the time. And actually in Ireland at that time, the IMF arrived that month, which was the International Monetary Fund, to kind of take over Ireland's financial situation. So there just was this weird mix at that exact moment. And also what happened there, which was quite interesting on this one week, was Terminal 2 in Dublin Airport opened, which was actually from which the direct flight from Dublin to Dubai opened up. So like the Colin McCann book, where he had this specific moment that was incredibly interesting I found it, this incredible this moment in November 2010 incredibly interesting too, and I use that as 
the structure for the novel. So it just takes place, the seven characters, they have three chapters each, and it takes place over seven days. So it's, it has a lattice structure rather than starting at A and ending with B, if you know what I mean. It's interesting that you mentioned 1970s New York, because when you say that, my, me and people listening, it instantly evokes an atmosphere and a romance, even though I've never been there. Now, I've never been to Dubai either, and, and many people have you know, opinions on, on Dubai and, and, what, what, and what it is like. Uh, how did you go about writing the atmosphere of Dubai? If, if you know, your eighth character here is the city itself, uh, how did you go about kind of painting that with words? For me, the city is as flawed and as, is as flawed as the people in the city. And I... The book opens up with a prologue where the film star is coming in to land on a plane into Dubai. And I wanted in that moment to feel, this is almost the city talking about itself, you know, and this sort of incredible optimism. People go there and they make something of their lives. You know, this huge opportunity there, you know, the other image we have, which is the counterpoint to this novel, is the image of Dublin at the time, which is down on its luck. I am a late millennial, you know, so it really, it's my generation who got really hit with the 2008 crash. And now we see Instagrammers there living in Dubai, kind of living it up and, you know, the high life. But I think people forget that most people who went to Dubai in the early 2010s went there because there was no choice. It was either that or no opportunity in their home country. So in as much as there's elements of Dubai, which I, you know, comment on in the book or, you know, are, are reflected in the book, the incredible inequalities, the the corruptions in the, the police force and things like that, you know, where who you are really matters rather than, you know, kind of a, a perfect sense of equality. One thing I will say about the place is it really was an oasis in the desert and it gave opportunity to my generation when there was no opportunity elsewhere in the world. So I don't want to, it was very important to me that I'm fair on the city and that anything that happens in Dubai, I've tried to make sure there's something mentioned in the book where it's happened in Ireland. So, you know, we have the uber wealthy living in Dubai, living hugely luxurious lives. However, you know, I talk about in the another scene in the book is, is the character back in Ireland going to see Rossborough House, which is, was owned in Ireland in the 1950s by one of the wealthiest families in the world who, you know, owned were diamond, they owned the diamond companies. And they lived just as luxuriously as the people in Dubai who have the money. So it's not like me commenting on a different culture and saying, this is what they do there. We all do it. This is human nature. This is what happens everywhere when people get money. And I think the question of luxury is interesting because and Tina Fey, actually, in her book, Bossy Pants, talks about luxury. And I'll, I'll refer to that in a second. Because when I first went to Dubai and I arrived at a friend's house in their villa, dropped my bags up to the bedroom, came down, of course, was delighted to meet them, having chats and everything. And then when I went back up to the room later, my case had been emptied and the shirts and everything I brought had been ironed. And I mean ironed, like ready to go into a shop. Like they were like, I can't iron like that myself. Maybe I don't have the patience. But 
I, that, I felt deeply uncomfortable with that. And I think especially knowing Irish history and, you know, the kind of the inequalities that have existed in Ireland, I was like, oh, I don't know that I feel entirely comfortable with the idea of this sort of made situation. <laughs> However, two weeks later, when I came back to Ireland and unloaded my case and everything was creased and nobody was there to do it, I was like, oh, I really wouldn't mind <laughs> having them made. And I thought... God, luxury very quickly corrupts, like it very quickly skews the mind. And Tina Fey talks about it in Bossy Pants, where she says she's talking about going to photo shoots. And she's like, day one, you're wide eyed and you're like, people are asking what do you want? For, you can have anything you want for lunch and they're treating you in all this way. And she says by photo shoot five, you're like going, where's my sushi? You know, <laughs> you know, so I think it's it's less about Dubai being inherently wrong. It's actually this is human nature. This is what happens to humans when extreme wealth gets in the mix in on the blurb to this uh you describe it as a city of mirages which is a fantastic turn of phrase what about the 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 way that you so getting away from the morality of of the situation and um and and things like that but more the, the atmosphere of you know it's an oasis in the desert how much did you think about the words that you were using to write that down? Well, I think Mirage is interesting because this sums up Dubai for me. You'll go into a bathroom and the tap will be gold-plated, but water may not come out of that tap. <laughs> so, and I think that sums up. It's definitely a product of... We see how it's portrayed. It's the Lamborghinis running up and down the roads. It's the, you know, the boats. It's the Palm. It's the six-star hotels. And however, that's only one side of it. I mean, it's a mirage in the sense that behind all that, there definitely is things that are less shiny about the country. And Dubai tends to work when it's working. But the problem is when things go wrong... doesn't tend to work so well like the, the the they're still figuring out their systems of governance and i actually think even since i wrote the book in the early 2010s and now there actually has been improvements in terms of how they are dealing with sort of legal situations and you know some of the things i describe in the book but it's good if you it's a very good country but you really have to live by the rules you know it's we see it happen we read articles in some of the tabloids in the uk especially of you know couples kissing on a beach and suddenly they're arrested this kind of thing so there's sort of an unspoken way of living there that you need to know before you go and and sometimes the travel you know the travel the travel brochure version of dubai is a mirage it's it's not quite as simple as that um, also, you mentioned your seven characters. So you've got a young Irishman, uh, a Russian sex worker, a Pakistani taxi driver, an Emirate man and an Ethiopian maid. Now, uh, when you're writing about so many different ethnicities and cultures, how did you make sure that your portrayal of them was was accurate and didn't, you know, if we've got three chapters with these people, uh, they didn't, you know, dip into, I guess, stereotype? I suppose three of the seven characters are... Irish. So I do feel the the majority of the focus of the book is on that Irish family. The f- four other characters, when I was there, I actually visited Dubai, God, it must be eight, nine or 10 times in, in that time period and interacted with maids, you know, spoke to taxi drivers. And I was trying, I really did my best to understand their point of view when I spoke to them 
And then when I got home, I did a lot of research on that. However, the one thing I, I can't claim to know how exactly someone from another culture experiences the world. And I would even attempt to, it's, it's, it's drawn from that experience. But the one thing I will say is that I've realized, you know, that quote by, uh, oh, let me see if I can remember it now. I can remember the person who quoted it, but bear with me one second. It's by Terence, the Roman, the African Roman uh, philosopher who said, I am a human being nothing human is alien to me. And one thing I've realized about any character I've ever written is underlying all our cultural differences and everything else is a sort of a common humanity of trying to do the best by ourselves and our family. And every character I felt some affinity with on that level, you know, you've the Ethiopian maid, but there was something in her ambition and her wanting to better her life, which felt a human experience that I've experienced myself wanting to, you know, make something of my life. You know, you, you look at the Pakistani taxi driver, there's something in him that reminded me of my grandfather, you know, just wanting the best for his children, you know, so which was also a very uh, experience of common humanity. So I can't claim to speak for them. I can only try and reach out and understand, you know, Proust actually, Marcel Proust talks about, you know, fiction trying to have new eyes. So trying to see the world as someone else sees it. And that's what I've tried to do. But, I, you know, as I said, this is me writing about specific people at a specific time. It's not making any general comments about another culture. Uh, lastly, you mentioned the, um, uh, the book that you wrote when you were 11 years old and finished it 64,000 words. Well, come on, what was the name of that book? Death of a Doll. It's so cliched. <laughs> Death of a doll. Oh, awful. Uh, it was just, oh, I can't even. I can't even open the document. I, it's it's awful. The first thing I can open actually is that book when I wrote with with when I signed with Darlie Anderson. The first chapter of that I'm still pretty happy with, but that's that's the first time I wrote anything that was bearable. Now the rest of the book was awful, but it was a good first chapter. <laughs> And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Jamie O'Connell for coming on the show. You can get a copy of the book on our website, writersroutine.com, uh, or by clicking the link in the episode notes wherever you're listening. Now, next week, we're with Christina Sweeney-Baird, whose debut is The End of Men. It's set in a future pandemic. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, she's on to tell us next week all about that novel. In the meantime, keep your eyes peeled on your podcast feeds for a little bite-sized retro random routine that is coming to you at the start of next week. Make sure you follow us so you never miss an episode there. You can also follow us on Twitter as well, at WritersPod, and you can get in touch at writersroutine.com. And I will see you next week with Christina Sweeney-Baird on the show. A full-time lawyer, part-time writer. She'll tell us how she gets it all done next Friday, and I'll see you then. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 